in prayer. Lord, we give thanks to you and we praise you. We give you praise and thanks this day because you have given us this incredible means of grace called prayer where we can present our needs before you. We can cry out to you. We can shout in victory to you. We can weep on our knees before you. We can even mumble unutterable words and you know how to translate them. You know us inside and out. And so we make our our request to you this day, Father God. And there are many things we could pray for. But Lord, uh, on our heart today, Lord, I just lift up my, my brother, Michael Otero, a man who loves you, who's been an encouragement to us, Lord. And as we... Um, gathered yesterday to mourn with him the loss of his wife last December. Kathy loved you. And we pray, Father God, for Michael as he grieves and continues to grieve. We pray, Father God, and thank you that he has a good church family at Rim Country Community Church in Star Valley, that they have loved him and wrapped their arms around him and supported him and wept with him and sat confounded with why. We thank you for our brother Michael. We thank you, Lord God, that Kathy loved you. And we grieve. Death is a death is an intruder. Death is It is an interloper. And I pray, Father God, that you would help us long for the day when death will be no more. It reminds us of a fallen creation. We give you praise and thanks for your conquering death. We pray for our brother Ken Libby, Father God, and thank you for his love. And Lord, I know that he would love to see visitors and I pray that we as a church will support him and bless him and strengthen him. We thank you for his joy and his hope in you. We pray, Father God, this day, uh, I pray for the elders of this church that we would have wisdom as we go forward. There are challenges for us in many, many regards. And Lord, your church needs godly elders who know the truth, and are able to make wise and sound biblical decisions, even difficult ones. So I pray for that, Father God. I pray for Reconciled Church. And pray, Lord God, that you would um, strengthen Charlie. I pray, Father God, that you would draw many to hear the truth that is expressed there every Sunday night whether from the reservation or from around town, Lord God, we pray that the gospel would penetrate um, those on the reservation and that divisions would be healed and animosities would be tempered and that people would find 
their unity at the cross. Father, we pray for the mission that we're talking about to Casa Grande and for the Gibbs and pray your grace be upon the Gibbs and upon Julia Curtis, Lord God, and just pray that you'd continue to guide them, strengthen them. I pray that you'd make their witness effective and cause them, Lord God, to reap a great harvest of souls and help us, Lord God, to play a small part in that. So, Lord, we pray for your grace and mercies to be upon us. Let your name be glorified in the things we say and do. And now have mercy upon us this day. Open our ears to hear your word and let us rejoice this day in hearing your truth and affirming it and accepting it and receiving it and obeying it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, love is a popular topic today. But one of the questions we might ask ourselves is, what is love? And I think uh, it's a big topic, and I'm not going to get too far into that subject this this morning. But I think sometimes, at least within the Christian um, environment, sometimes we conflate or we might even mistake being nice for love. That as a Christian, we, we're, we're to be nice. As we continue in this study in 1 Corinthians, and, and we're in chapter 5, Paul loves the Corinthian church. But Paul is often blunt. He's not always nice in the way we might define that. Paul ends up saying some very, very difficult things. He might say some very hard things to this church. But in fact, those hard things that Paul says to the church is a demonstration that he loves this church. In fact, if Paul were just nice, I think it would be a demonstration that Paul cares nothing for the Corinthian people. And so he says some hard things. And just as we go along in chapters 5 through 7, we are going to be dealing with some hard things. And I will try to be diplomatic. Maybe that's not the right word. I will try to be loving, but maybe not always nice. So let me give you a review of where we have been. Because Paul, in chapter 5, we started a, a brand new section. Paul had, had been dealing with the arrogance and um, the fruit of that arrogance in chapters 1 through 4. In chapters 1 through 4, the fruit of the arrogance of the Corinthian church was that they were divided. They, there was a, a sectarianism. And we're going to see this division um, as we continue on uh, through the, the book of 1 Corinthians. But then in chapter 5, Paul ends up going into a, a new issue. And the new issue is that of sexual immorality. Now, make no mistake that pride is at the heart of this. Their arrogance is at the heart of what's going on. Because while there is sexual immorality within the church, Paul is more concerned with how the church is dealing with it, or maybe better said, how the church is not dealing with it. In other words, the church has completely ignored this 
sexual immorality that is, is that is amongst them. And I think Paul, as we talked about, was flabbergasted that it was among them. So, uh, and we're going to see in chapter 6 this idea of, uh, he's going to return to this theme of sexual immorality. So let me just make sure and remind you, this is from last week a little bit, but remind you of a definition, a biblical definition of sexual immorality because it's really very simple. Sexual immorality in the Bible is a very broad term. And underneath that broad term of sexual immorality is everything that is, every sexual act that is not ordained by God. So then what is ordained by God? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's very simple. God has ordained sexual intimacy between a biological male and a biological female in the covenant of marriage, and that's it. Everything else is sexual immorality. Now, the Bible has various terms, adultery or homosexuality or fornication, but sexual immorality is anything outside, physical intimacy outside of marriage, outside of a biological male and a biological female in the covenant of marriage. If not, it is sexual immorality according to God. And I think sometimes I I need to explain that because I think we are more influenced by culture and society than we are by God's word. And we may not even know it. And so what is going on is there is this immorality going on in the church and the church is utterly ignoring it. They are not doing anything. And Paul is like going, listen, I'm not really dealing with, he'll deal with the the, the man who's involved with this um, in greater detail Well, next week for us. But Paul is like saying the church needs to, to get involved. The church needs to do something. And Paul's instruction was hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved. And we talked about this, and I use the term the grace of discipline. We've talked about means of grace, how God has provided various means by which he grows his people, he nourishes his people. And one of the means of grace, though um, I don't typically see it when I see a list of God's means of grace, but one of the means of grace we use is church discipline because By God disciplining his people, we grow in greater Christ-likeness. We grow in our love for Christ. We grow in our in our desire to know him more. And when we talk about church discipline, and we'll spend, I think, a fair amount of time on this next week, but we talk and we briefly mentioned it last week, church discipline generally comes in two forms informal and formal. Informal is what we're doing right now. Informal might be over a cup of coffee. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. It's in a Bible study where we read God's word and we see it forming and say, you know what, I'm not living up to that. Or we ask, are you living up to this? And we say, well, no, not really. Well, this is part of church. It's informal. Formal is when the church actually gathers together and basically holds court. Paul is saying formal discipline needs to happen. The church needs to gather, hold court, 
and deliver, basically excommune this person. So, that's where we've been. Um, I had intended to get all the way through verse 13 today, and then when I was doing my lesson, I got through verse 8, and I was had more than enough material, so I just cut it short. So we're going to look at verses um, 6 through 8 today, and Paul is going to now give the reasons why the church must act. So he's saying, you must act as a church. And now he's going to give some very practical reasons why the church should act. And he is going to use three metaphors. So this is just a preview. Um, The preview is that Paul is going to give reasons why the church must act. And he is going to provide for us three supporting metaphors that um, inform the church why they need to do something about this guy. So if you will, join with me. I'm going to read the entire uh, chapter um, of chapter 5. It's only 13 verses. Um, Our focus will be on verses 6 through 8. But listen to the word of the living God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So Paul begins with, your boasting is not good. Here's that word again. This idea of you are puffed up, you are arrogant, you are boasting. The idea here, and this arrogance threatens the church. The idea, I think, behind this boasting is that the the church has boasted that they are mature in the faith. We are mature Christians. We, we've got great teachers and we are big time Christians. And Paul is saying, first of all, he said in chapters one through four, the fact that there are schisms among you show, demonstrate that you're not mature, but you're babes. You're infants in Christ. You want to know that you're infants in Christ? It's evident. You're divided. 
You want other evidence that your babe's in Christ and not mature? You're putting up with this immorality in your church. Your boasting is not good. It makes no sense. You are not a mature, you are not mature believers. You are babes in Christ and you are plagued with this idea, the self-admiration. And because of the self-admiration, the church failed to see the danger among them. Paul sees this as a real threat. We talked a little bit about that last week. Paul saw that um, this Paul's like Moses running into the midst of the people to spare them from God's wrath. And they needed to cease boasting of their maturity and put their house in order. Stop boasting. You got other work to be doing. And so then Paul then now presents these three metaphors. Three metaphors. What, what is necessary to set, if they're to set their house in order, what is necessary? for them to do to set their house in order. And Paul then gives three metaphors, if you will, um, in regards to what they need to do or why they need to uh, set their house in order. And the first metaphor Paul uses is this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This would be kind of the Hebrew way of saying using our American phrase. Our, 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 our American phrase is one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, right? So a little leaven leavens a whole lump is kind of the, the ancient Hebrew way of that same um, proverb, if you will. Paul also talks about this in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the entire lump? Just so you know, because we're going to talk a little bit about leaven today. Leaven is not yeast. It is a small batch of fermented dough that is held back from the loaf, and it would be saved and kneaded into the new loaf, much as if you've ever made sourdough bread. It's probably the same idea. So you make your, your dough, and... Before you're done, you pinch off a little bit, stash it in a jar, let it continue to ferment, and you bake your bread. And next week when you make your new dough, you take that old piece of leaven and you mold it into the new loaf of bread. And and what Paul, the Paul's point here is he's pointing out the remarkable ability for a small amount of leaven to affect the entire loaf. It doesn't take much. A small amount of this leaven will eventually affect a huge lump of dough. The bottom line is this. Sin is infectious. And once it is allowed entrance into the community, the whole body will be disastrously impacted. And and unless some outside action is taken, it is impossible to remove without further damage. So Paul is saying, you need to get ahead of this thing. So that's a fairly simple illustration. This is why you need to cleanse uh, the church and deal with this situation because don't you know that even a small amount of sin will affect the entire community? Some of the effects of sin, and let me say, the effects of unrepentant sin. Because we've all come here today 
probably having sinned this last week, and that may be too generous for some of us, having sinned this morning on the way to church. But the effects of unrepentant sin on the church are great. First of all, it allows for a brother or sister to engage in acts that will bring God's wrath. That's an amazing thing, that the church is allowing a brother or a sister to continue on in, an, in actions that will bring God's wrath upon that. But we see somebody playing with fire and we say, oh well. A kid juggling knives and we say, yeah. To do nothing when we see such activity does, is not a loving act because the person will get hurt. If the, the community probably, the entire church is probably going to be devastated. But if not, God will discipline his own. And so that first thing is that, first of all, it's just not loving. It might be nice, but it is not loving to see somebody playing with fire and do nothing. The second effect of unrepentant sin upon the church is that it encourages sin in others. That is, other people see this and say, oh, well, I guess I can be involved in the same thing. We've had, uh, in 22 years, there's probably nothing that we haven't seen, but we have seen this very thing. I've had people here in utterly and completely um, ungodly relationships. And there was a time many, many years ago, probably 15 years ago, maybe maybe more. And, and we had young kids, teenage kids. We also had um, individuals who, who had lost their spouse and they were working hard to maintain a godly lifestyle, and here is this man flaunting his sin with another woman in the church, and people, I'm like going, you are promoting, we have men and women in our church trying hard to live a godly life, and you are flaunting your sin and your so-called freedom. To allow a public sin to go unchecked is to endorse such action in the eyes of others. And finally, well, I'm just going to give you three. I'm sure we could come up with a lot of ways that unrepentant sin affects the church. But finally, it makes a mockery of Christ to the outside world. The outside world looks on and says, that's Christianity. That's Christianity? And so, we should note that sin's influence is silent and steady. Paul is concerned about the body, and he is basically saying the body has gained green. And it's time to cut stuff off. Needs to be dealt with. 
You are arrogant, he says, and you will not do anything. You'll notice again, Paul is less concerned about the man than he is about the church's lack of response. So the first metaphor that Paul uses is, don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul then goes on and he uses a a second metaphor. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So here's our next metaphor, number two, and that is cleanse out the old. Paul moves from the corrupting influence of leaven to the incompatibility between the old man and the new man. So on the one hand, don't you know that sin affects everything? Now he's saying, not only does it affect, infect everything, but it's incompatible. You've been born again. And, and there is no compatibility between the old man and the new man. And, and, and so let me again give a little bit of background here because this has a very Hebrew background. Paul is referencing, he is looking back to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Passover was a one-day festival, and then right after the Passover was a seven-day festival of unleavened bread, so an eight-day party. We always think it's interesting that God had a lot of parties in the Old Testament. And this was a, an eight-day party, an eight-day festival. But during this, one of the things... That was happen- what had happened is that only unleavened bread was to be eaten during the Passover and during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, every crumb of unleavened bread was to be removed from the house on the day that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. So people would go through the house and sweep it and mop it and clean it and get into the nooks and crannies that no part of unleavened bread would be found in the house. It would be removed. No unleavened bread was to be eaten during the seven-day festival of unleavened bread. In fact, violation resulted in being cut off from the community. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 12, verses 15 and 19. That if there was leaven, you were to be cut off from the community. So a serious, serious aspect. So that's the background the background then is cleanse out the old leaven, just like they used to do at Pat, just like we, well, Jewish people do at uh, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Cleanse it out. Why? That you may be a new lump. And notice this: as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In other words, who they are. Note this: who they are is revealed in what they do. And what they do is the result of who they are. Now, I'm going to ask you to pay a little bit of attention here because it's going to get a little bit, not complicated. You guys are smart. You can handle, you know, but but it does take a, a little bit of listening. And, and I'm grateful that uh, I get to preach weekly in front of a church that does listen 
and actually cares about what God's Word says. So, I guess I'm not really asking you to do anything new, but listen. Oftentimes, I want you to note what Paul says here. First of all, cleanse out the old leaven. That's an imperative. What is an imperative? An imperative is a command. So Paul is making a command. And the command is, clean the old leaven. Evil influences must be banished. Get rid of it. But then Paul follows this up with an indicative. Now, you'll hear at our church, every once in a while, you'll hear us talk about the importance of the imperative and the indicative. And like I said, probably many churches I could say, you know, I want you to pay attention to the imperative and the indicative, and I would lose everybody. Probably in preacher class they say, yeah, you shouldn't mention those things. But I'm blessed because we have a church who is loves to hear about God's Word. And this is such an important principle in God's Word. So important. If you get this, God's Word will make way more sense to you. And it will, it will keep us from, de- from devolving into just mere moralism. But there's an imperative. What's an imperative? It's a command. What's an indicative? The indicative is just indicate something. It indicates a truth. It indicates a reality. And so Paul says the imperative, clean out the command, clean out the old leaven. Why? What's the truth of the reality? The reality is that you are holy. The reality is that you are born again. The reality is who you are. An indicative indicates a truth or reality. And the imperative The command rests upon the indicative. In other words, you are new creations is what Paul is saying. You have been freed from sin. You have been washed. You have been sanctified in Christ. You have been justified in the name of Jesus. And that truth should inform how you live. Today we hear this phrase and it's usually meant to uh, promote all sorts of uh, license. And the phrase is, you be you. But Paul is saying, you be you. Not in a, in a sense to go do whatever you want, but you live a holy life because that's who you are. You've been born again. God has made you a new person. Christ has freed you from your sins. Christ has washed you. He's sanctified you. He's justified you. And now be that. Be that. And being that, you will do what? Get rid of the old leaven. Jesus used this idea of new wine, new and old wineskins. In other words, that old pagan lifestyle cannot be incorporated into the new life of Christ because they're incompatible. Christ has accomplished our salvation on the cross and that work was done that we might be new creations in Christ. Folks, becoming a Christian is more than a right set of beliefs. It is living out those truths as a representative of Christ himself. What does Jesus say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you are lights in the world. 
You've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now do that. Do what you are. Be who you are. Be who Christ has made you. And Christ did not make you for sexual immorality. He made you to be something else. So, let me also clarify the Corinthians here, the command, the imperative. The Corinthians are not commanded to cleanse out the old leaven to be holy. The Corinthians are commanded to cleanse out the old leaven because they are holy. And because they are holy, they are to act. The Corinthians are not commanded to do this in order to be holy. Do this and then God will think you're pure. No, you are pure. You're born again. You're a Christian. Now do this act. Do the imperative. I hope that makes a little bit of sense for you all. But then he goes on. And he says, our Passover lamb is Jesus Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. All of that has been made possible by the work of Christ. The reason for removing the leaven of the immoral person is rooted in the significance of Christ's death. So, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Again, a very Old Testament illusion. And so just as Christ, the Passover lamb, that takes us back to the Passover. And what was the Passover? The people in Egypt were groaning under the weight of slavery and they were delivered from their plight and they were delivered from the wrath of God by the blood of the Lamb. They were enslaved. And God's wrath was going to fall upon the land of Egypt. And everybody was going to get caught up in the wrath of God. Unless one hid behind the blood of the Lamb. They took the blood of the Lamb and they smeared the blood on the doorposts of their household. And if so, and they hid behind the door that was smeared with blood, the wrath of God would pass over them. And so just as the people of Egypt were groaning under the weight of slavery and they were delivered from their plight and God's wrath by the blood of the Lamb, so we have been freed from our bondage to sin and God's wrath by the sacrifice, by the Passover sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Church, church on Randall Place, you are holy. You are washed by Christ. Let us live out that reality. Why? Because Christ has died for you. God is no longer your enemy. He is your Father. Let's live in light of the fact that God is our Father. So, quick summary. Christ's death was to effect a change in the life of His followers, and they should live as those who have died and risen with Christ. So the second metaphor that Paul uses is cleanse out the old leaven. And be a new lump because you are. And you are because Christ has made you that way. Now, what an encouraging word, church. 
Paul continues on with his metaphors. And he says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Therefore, kind of a term of conclusion. I'm not concluding. I still have a ways to go. Paul is wrapping up this section. Therefore, let us celebrate the the festival. You should note that the way that this is phrased, this idea of let us celebrate, is it's a the verbal form is an ongoing celebration. I bring that up. I think it's important in the text here. It's an ongoing festival of new life in Christ. See, here's what happened. Every year, the Passover, the Jews celebrated the Passover, or they still do. And it reminded Jews every year of their deliverance from bondage by the power of God. So every year, they would gather together and they would remember and celebrate the festival they would remember and celebrate once a year that God delivered them out of bondage. Paul takes that same imagery, but he says, it ain't once a year. Let us continually every day celebrate the festival. Every day celebrate the fact that you have been bought and redeemed and freed from slavery, freed from God's wrath. Every day, wake up and celebrate the festival. It's an ongoing thing. Remember the power of God to deliver you every single day. Paul is reminding us that as followers of Christ, every day is, every day is deliverance day. Every day is the day that you wake up and celebrate. I have been freed from the bondage of sin by the Passover lamb who has sacrificed himself for me. Every day, wake up and celebrate. Every day is a celebration. It is a continual celebration. There is no day that we don't celebrate the fact that we have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. This is how we proceed um, to do what Paul has commanded. Let us celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, Paul says. How do we celebrate the festival every day? Well, we don't do it with the old leaven, the old leaven of malice and evil. So daily removing the leaven from our lives. Then we celebrate the victory of Christ in delivering us from that which enslaves us. Every day. What is enslaving me today? What is keeping me in bondage today? What sin? We, we cast that out. And we celebrate um, that Christ has delivered us from that which enslaves us. You can't celebrate victory until you deal with the leaven of sin. You have to first deal with that. The sin of malice, that is strife which led to the factions and the wickedness that led the man to take his father, father's wife are those things typified by the old and they are to be removed. But once justified, the church is to live lives of sincerity and truth. A few applications for us as a church as we... Uh, before I get to a a conclusion. In these few passages of text, 
there is no doubt an implied reference to the Lord's Supper and a cleansing the leaven would have meant barring the man from the table. Sometimes we refer to this as silent censure. And it is the initial step in church discipline. In fact, the idea of excommunicate, some might even say excommune. There is no communion for, for the person in ongoing unrepentant sin. The Supper is, the Lord's Supper is church discipline in miniature form. It provides a warning every time we observe it. See, no one can come to the table without first examining themselves. We talk about that. In fact, we have a whole time in our church service of confession of sin. But often before we take it, we ask about spending some time in repentance. It is. Every time we take it, it is church discipline. Informal, but we are, we are examining ourselves. Do I have something against my brother? So. Another application is that a healthy church is a self-correcting community. A healthy church is a self-correcting community. See, rather than enacting formal discipline, which is when the church holds court, the church gathers in the name of Christ and pronounces judgment upon and excommunes an unrepentant sinning brother or sister. That's what we would call formal discipline. But rather than enacting formal discipline, we regularly enact informal discipline. That is, we admonish one another, we exhort one another, we, we, we share God's word with one another, we see a brother or a sister in an errant way, and we say, brother, sister, have you seen what God's word says about this? Have you looked into this? This is informal discipline. It's a phone call. And we exhort one another, this is what God's word says, will you confess your sins? And they say, yeah. And it's like, okay, well then we're good. In a healthy church, you will rarely see formal discipline because the presence of regular self-correction, because the church is continually correcting itself, the need for this formal court scene is unnecessary because we're regularly... One of the great things about taking the Lord's Supper every week is that we are regularly confessing our sins. And I I hope then that there is little, little need. Hopefully never again do we have to do formal church discipline. But when this informal, regular self-correction breaks down, the church is required to take drastic measures for purification and for the protection of of their members. Remember, man, we look at the book of Revelation and Paul talks about sexual immorality in the church and he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Basically, I'm leaving the church. And let me tell you, without the Spirit of God, this ain't a church. It is a building. That's all it is. What a sad day if Christ were to say, I'm done.
Now we might be thinking, well, well, no, you set a pretty high standard. And we might even say, well, I don't know that I've achieved those standards flawlessly. And none of us, let's be honest, can say that we've achieved the prescribed standards flawlessly. Yet the supper should serve to wake us up from our indifference. Verse 8 tells us to celebrate the festival with sincerity and truth. Notice it does not say with perfection and truth. We don't have to be perfect to take the meal. Really, none of us would be able to if that were the case. It's not about having no issues. It's about knowing that we have those issues and that we need help in overcoming them, and that we need Christ's sacrifice to cleanse us. See, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And that offering is sufficient. If we are in Christ, we need not fear God's wrath. That has been absorbed by Jesus' death. And yet, God will discipline his people. But here's the good news. While he will discipline us, he will not destroy us. So I'll conclude here. The purity of the congregation is a serious matter. Sin spreads. Probably one of the greatest examples is in the Old Testament of Achan. You remember Achan, perhaps, in the book of Joshua. After a great victory at the, of conquering Jericho, they went, uh, the people of Israel went up against a little town called Ai. And this was a nothing town. They figured, oh, we'll, we'll take it easily. But they didn't, and men died. And it was because of a secret sin held by a man by the name of Achan. Now, Achan was judged, and so was his whole family. But don't forget, men died because of Achan's sin. Fathers, children lost their fathers because of the sin of Achan. Fathers lost their sons because of the sin of Achan. Wives became widowed because of the sin of Achan. See, it spreads. It spreads. It's a serious matter. I know in the church today, maybe we don't think of sin as serious. But we talked about how the world looks upon us and thinks, does not take us seriously because we endorse the exact same things. Maybe a little off topic, but I remember just before the Obergefell decision, the Supreme Court saying that same-sex marriage is constitutionally permissible or demanded even. And many unbelievers were saying, now Christians are worried about marriage? You guys have been divorcing one another. You've been, you know, sleeping around. You've been doing all these things. Now, all of a sudden, marriage is sanctity. There's the sanctity of marriage. They did not take us seriously. Why? Properly, rightly so. Why? Because there was no self-correction. That's at least one reason. Public gross immorality cannot be swept under the rug, and sexual immorality must be addressed. Now, earlier I asked that you would pray for the elders. You see, because the church walks a very fine line between being a welcoming community that accepts confessed sinners and aids in getting the backslidden back on course and being morally lax and ignoring 
sin that brings destruction. So that's the tough balance the church has. And we need wisdom for that. Because on the one hand, we are a welcoming community. If you, there's nobody in this church building today who is not a sinner. And all y'all are looking at one. And on the one hand, we want to be a welcoming community to all and all who would confess their sins. And those who are backslidden, it is our desire to bring that, that person back and restore that person back into a healthy relationship with Christ. That's on the one hand. On the other hand is the fact that this stuff just needs to get dealt with. And it takes incredible wisdom, incredible wisdom to find the balance between those two things. It's really hard. We do not want to ex- ignore things. On the other hand, we don't want to just, first sign of trouble, get up and get on the internet and just rail on somebody. So how do we do that and how do we do it well? Paul, though, assumes that the well-being of the community cannot be compromised. And then one other final concluding point, and that is, let us celebrate So today, let us celebrate the Lord's table. And I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. And when I'm done reading, I'm going to ask you all to, uh, those of you who want to, who are followers of Christ, who have repented of their sins, um, that you would be welcome at the table of the Lord to receive the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask that you would come down and take the elements in your hand and return down the side aisle um, and keep those elements in your hand. And we will partake because this is a family meal. So we will partake together. Whoever therefore, Paul writes, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Folks, what a great... We talk about this, we should confess our sins. And Paul says some people are eating, um, have not confessed their sins, and people have gotten sick and even died. But if we acknowledge that we have sinned against the Lord, and we uh, acknowledge that and confess that, Paul says, then we're not condemned. So join with me in prayer. Father, we spend just a few moments in quiet reflection, confessing our sins. I pray, Lord God, that as we celebrate the table of the Lord, we can do so with joy because you, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed and we are restored to new life. So Lord, In these next few moments of quiet reflection, convict us. Show us where we have fallen short that we might confess to you. If we need to confess to a brother or sister, let us be faithful to do that. 
and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And now, our Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you've given us this table. That in it, we see the horrible price that you willingly paid to purchase our pardon. So grant us grace and favor this day, and we stand fully and completely assured that if we have confessed our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and we have fellowship with you, and we have fellowship with one another. So let us now fellowship at the table of the Lord. Church, if you would like to, come forward and receive the elements, and in just a few moments we will partake together.